This is episode number 55, Do the Work with Hilary Cornell. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to an upcoming conference that we'll be hosting in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Seeing is Believing. A conference where you'll get a chance to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar transformation that you are. A conference where you'll get a chance to hear from speakers from all over the country, including Adele Harris, Gina Surgeon, Ebony Watson, Erica Curry Van E, and myself included. If you haven't registered, please check out overcomingodds.today forward slash seeing is believing. Now, let's get back to our guest. Hillary Corna, keynote speaker, best-selling author, founder of the Human Processes Continuum. On this episode, you'll get a chance to hear of different ways to develop drive, self-reliance, empathy, ways that Hillary was able to launch and grow her public speaking career, and embrace adversity along the way. Without further ado, please welcome Hillary Corna. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Ads podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. Today's guest is a good friend of mine that I met through a mutual friend named John Harrell here in Austin, Texas. And I remember the first encounter we had, we were talking about personal development and consulting in different practices. And one of the things that interested me the most about Hillary's story was the journey that she took as a public speaker. So the next obvious thing, as most of you know, my question to her was, well, would you be interested in sharing your story with the rest of us and our audience? And without a doubt, she said yes. And so we're here today live with Hillary in sharing her journey and experience of a public speaker. And so what I would like to do is, without further ado, please welcome Hillary Corna. Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, the way that I wanted to start off this episode is a little bit differently from the past, and that is I'd like to, for those who aren't familiar with your story, um, have you share a little bit about your upbringing and your past so people can get a better understanding of who you are and why you are doing the type of work that you do. Absolutely. Um, like most people's stories, we are very much impacted by how we're raised and our upbringing. And um, for me personally, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. And when I was about nine months old, um, my mother uh, was a young mother of five children and I was twin. So she had two nine-month-old babies when my father passed away in a car accident. And, um, you know, this is the late 80s, 
well, mid-80s when cell phones didn't exist and um, mothers were typically stay-at-home. So she never graduated from college. Um, and overnight, within a couple hours, she became a single mom and uh, raised all five children alone. Mm. Uh, we all turned out to be <laughs> relatively okay and put ourselves through college on our own. And um, that really, I like to say, was the worst thing that ever happened to me and the best thing that ever happened to me because I grew up not knowing a father, not having a father and thinking that a single parent home was normal mm -hmm. and uh, not really being taught what a relationship was. And um, as a result, I became really independent, very young, at a very young age and became very self-reliant. Um, mm -hmm. Little things such as, you know, if I wanted to play a sport, figuring out my rides, um, doing my own laundry in grade school. I lied on my first job application saying I was uh, 14 instead of 12 so that I could help my mom with bills. So, you know, when you start to become that kind of bold, uh, that bold at such a young age, like it, it ultimately impacts you as an adult. And so... Um, Bringing, bringing me into high school and college, I was really adamant about going to school out of state and studying international business. So I studied uh, Japanese and international business, became fluent in the language, and decided after university that I wanted to work abroad. Mm -hmm. So after college, I um, sold my Jeep, dumped my boyfriend, and bought a one-way to Singapore after about nine months of research. And I said, if I'm going to work abroad, I'm going to go now when I'm young and I don't have to be uprooted from friends and family later in life. And I ended up um, within six weeks securing five job offers, and the last one was from Toyota's Asian regional headquarters out of Singapore. Mm -hmm. So for three years, my first job out of college, I had a dream position managing 14 different Asian countries' process improvement activities for the Asia-Pac region with projects mostly led in uh, Manila, the Philippines, and Bangalore, India. I was working with some of the most talented, wise, successful Toyota executives from around the world working in the Asian headquarters because it is such an important market for Toyota. Um, and when I came back, when I decided to leave the company, which was for a combination of personal and professional reasons, um, I came back to the States and I really wanted to speak in front of college students. Um, in four years of university, I never once had a female speaker come to my campus. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be the speaker that I didn't have that said, yes, go uh, do that crazy thing now while you can. Because when I decided to go to Singapore, everyone said I was crazy. I can count on one. <laughs> Literally, the dean of the business school said I could never do it. Now he brings me back to speak every year on his campus. It's funny how that works. Um, it is how the world turns. And... Um, I can count on one hand how many people said, yes, go to Asia, and three of them I had never met in person before. So I wanted to be that person. Um, and that's what spearheaded my my world um, into speaking, uh, which I can go into a bit more detail about later. But I um, started speaking in 2011 mm -hmm. and have now built my, built my speaking agency both within the co collegiate as well as corporate market, um, released my book, which got later picked up by a publisher and became a bestseller and now do consulting for 14, fortune 5,000 clients. So my, my whole role, um, within my company is keynote speaker, bestselling author, and, 
senior executive advisor for Fortune 5000 clients implementing my consulting model. What a journey. That's just unbelievable what you've been able to accomplish from a, well, thank you. from an upbringing like that. The question that I have to you regarding all of that is, where do you develop that drive? Do you think a lot of it kind of just stems from the experience that you had as far as just know that, okay, don't give up. Yes, things may not be always in your advantage, but it's all about what you make out of those circumstances and opportunities. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I get, I think this is like question of my life is anyone who meets me says, wow, you have so much drive. Where does it come from? I think there's, there's part of it that's very innate. Mm -hmm. Um, my siblings are not the same as me. Um, I think I'm also very curious. So if I do any of the strength finders tests or any of the personality tests is, is very much an innate trait of mine. Mm -hmm. I want to get to know people. I want to understand concepts. I'm constantly seeking out new experiences. I feel as though as soon as I understand something, I don't understand it at all. I just <laughs> am a lover of learning. Um, and I, you know, like any strength that can be used to a fault. So, you know, anyone who really loves expanding their horizons can also be seen as kind of all over the place sometimes. Um, but for me, my drive is, you know, life is truly limited to your days, your hours, your minutes, and it could be all taken from you within a second. And mm -hmm. I think most people have their parents their whole lives and then they struggle with death when their parents are 70. And it's like, I didn't even have a parent. And so when you know what death is at a really, really young age, and when you're talking about death at a really, really young age, and not death of a third cousin or second uncle twice removed death of someone you never knew, but death of like literally your immediate family member, there's just this urgency that's felt in life that I think is unlike anything else. And that's why I feel like it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because for me, I have, I have no tolerance for apathy, mm -hmm. for excuses, for, um, no, I mean, listen, we're all lazy every now and again, but for not putting in the work and inaction, I have, I just, I feel very blessed to be, uh, instilled with this drive towards action, constant mm -hmm. action. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's what led to me to where I am today. That's no, I completely agree with you. I, I think for me, the journey has been somewhat similar as far as just seeing the things that you, you have, obviously we have slightly different experiences in different upbringings, but from, from the things that I Sorry, experienced <laughs> in my, in my past is that I think you get to a point where you, it's, you've seen enough and you do begin to take action as far as becoming the person that you needed the most when you were young. But with that, I think there's a huge level of self accountability that has to be developed in order for you to actually get to that point. And because no one's going to hold your hand and say, okay, Hillary, these are the things you have to do today in order well, to become you future self. You have a lot of parents that do hold people's hands mm -hmm. and you know, when you're born, I feel like it's very much a kind of, unfortunate families that where children are born into families where they're handed everything. And it's not until they're 22 that they're told to go figure things out. Mm -hmm. It's like I was told to go figure things out when I was like seven, mm -hmm. six, five, you know, go figure out what the toilet paper is, go figure out how to start the washer and dryer, go figure out 
how to reach for the sink when you can't reach for it. You're not, you're so little, like a lot of parents. And I experienced this with my college speaking events is that the number one things that hold people hold college students back from pursuing their dares for themselves, their goals is their parental approval. Mm. And so I think that there are a lot of people out there that, um, are never really kind of let go and it's not their fault. They're mm-hmm. guided away, and then it's not until they're 22 that they're told to go figure things out. So if you're a parent listening, like I would say, let go of your kid earlier. And if you're a student or a young person listening, I would say, let go of your parent as soon as possible. Like stop taking their money, stop taking their advice, mm-hmm. stop taking anything from them and go elsewhere, go out into the world. Mm-hmm. I think this That's is a per- how you get away from that, the apathy. Absolutely. I think this is a perfect segue into today's theme, which is a life of a public speaker. And the, the way that I'd like to start that one off is, do you remember the time when you got your first client and yeah. what was that story like? Yeah, so um, when I decided to go into speaking, that was what I knew I wanted to do before writing. I knew I wanted to be that speaker I didn't have. I can't tell you where it came from. I can't tell you how I found out about it or uh, you know who inspired me to do it. It literally was like, I need to get on college campuses because mm-hmm. no one told me that these things were possible. And uh, so putting the book aside, for me, even though I had this very elite, uh, very sought after rare experience and expertise with Kaizen and process improvement for Toyota, I didn't care at that time about doing corporate speaking. I really, really, really wanted to get to college students. Mm -hmm. Something very instinctual and very much built out of my own need, right? Especially as a female in business. And so naturally the first three to six months of sort of launching my career in speaking was um, simply doing the, the, the same things anyone else would do, which was draw up a speaker kit, mm-hmm. draft some talk descriptions, um, build some credibility from whatever credibility I had, whether it's media or you know Toyota's name and things like that. And then I would go to the market and start selling. And I, because I was targeting college students, I was really communicating with former professors of mine because mm-hmm. they're all connected. Um, people I knew through my business school, whether it's advisors or speakers that came to campus, things like that. Um, and then my personal network, um, just through my own experiences and who they knew on college campuses. Mm -hmm. At that time I had hired a part-time staff to help me, um, because I had saved up a lot of money when I worked my final year at Toyota to, because I knew this was going to be a lot of work. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the first time we booked a speaking engagement. Um, I had gotten a couple where it was like $200, $500, but I really wanted to get to 1000 Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be an honorarium price. And she was on the phone upstairs and she hung up the phone and yelled down the stairs like, I booked one for 900 <laughs> And then all I hear is this kerplunk. And she starts rolling down the stairs. She fell down the stairs. She was so excited. So that was my first official contract was 900 bucks. 
And, um, and then it went up from there. So, uh, at that time I, I know we were going to, you were going to ask me about pricing, but I guess we'll go mm-hmm. ahead and to it. But at that price, at that time I had done maybe 10 to 15 engagement engagements from free to paid, um, from nonprofit to businesses, to schools. Um, and then I, I, I just knew that there was a natural connection with Toyota. So I had some connections with their uh, U.S. headquarters in L.A. Mm-hmm. and used the last of my miles that I had points from my work at Toyota, flew out to L.A., and I pitched them. After about six months of preparation, I, I pitched them a sponsorship deal. And I said, listen, you have no reason to not support this book. Um, it speaks nothing but highly of you. Um, and you can't get on college campuses very easily because, obviously – Corporations have a hard time marketing on college campuses. They're very protected. And they said yes. So it was through about six months of working with that sponsorship deal that I was able to really elevate my credibility. And then that's when the more paid speaking events came on. So that's when I increased my price to about Mm $2,500 and then up from there. So now my full price for a college speaking engagement is 5000 inclusive of all expenses. And my full price for a corporate speaking engagements is 10000 inclusive of all expenses. That's amazing. Take so it. I did 75% of my work in colleges, 25% of my work in corporate. I could make to- so much more money doing corporate, but mm-hmm. it's not as fun as colleges. Absolutely. Colleges are more fun and Absolutely. fulfilling. Take us a step back and help sure. those who are just getting into this space better understand why you did the number of free engagements and the ones that were 100 or 200 because I think it's imp- that's an important aspect to understand. You know, you have a lot of people get into the space and it's almost like expected to charge 2500 or 5000 or whatever it may be. I know that from all the speakers that I spoke with, every single one of them has a similar story. Some did 30 free engagements and what was your thinking like, okay, I'm going to do this many. What were you trying to accomplish through those? Yeah, so I think it's important to take in mind, you know, what credentials you have. Mm-hmm. If you're coming with no concrete experience or lacking professional experience or, you know, people look for what's the experience backing it up? What media outlets have you been on? What do you write in? Things like that. And so you kind of have to price based on what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. If you have no media no, you know, concrete corporate name behind you or Mm -hmm. no writing to back you up or you don't have a book, it's going to be harder. And so the more of those you have, the stronger platform you have. Um, For me, I was from the start uh, marketing towards college students with a price. Mm. Um, I did free engagement for my experience but because I knew the market and I understand that colleges have budget, mm-hmm. I knew that it didn't even do me any good to market myself for free. So the types of events that I did for free, which honestly I only did like 10 total, were like the Rotary. Um, there was something in Columbus, my hometown, called the Columbus Italian Club, which I got a scholarship from for college. So I did a, a talk there. There's also something called like the um, – uh, something something international foundation i did a talk there because it's a very strong network mm-hmm. um, the columbus foundation i did a talk there so more of the nonprofits that i knew had a really strong network mm-hmm. 
work with them and say, hey, um, you know, I'll come do a free talk uh, if you buy 20 books to give away or things like that. Um, I was always negotiating. You know, you should really lead from a pace, place of power and leverage mm-hmm. in the sense of that you're valuable. If you just say, yeah, I'll do it when I when you want at your price or it's just never going to work. You're going to see at you're going to be seen as weak and invaluable because that means they can get you at any time. So I from the start was like, listen, I know these people have budgets and I'm looking to do this for a living. So therefore, I'm going to see my price right away. Mm-hmm. Now, at the start, that was low. You know, those first few were 500. Um, but within 10 free events and probably three $500 events, I was already up to 1500. And at that point I had recorded all the talks so that I could edit my own speaking video and the way mm-hmm. software is available. I mean, you don't need anyone to do a speaker video. You can learn it in an hour. It's not complicated. It's oh, more yeah. than ever before. And so sure, it wasn't the most beautiful thing, but again, having that pure 90 second video was instantaneously elevates you as you're uh, in your platform. Mm-hmm. How do you, so you go into a speaking engagement and you're part of the event. How do you follow up? What are some of the questions you may ask people? Because I know that one of the things that's very important to get from opportunities like that are testimonials. Mm-hmm. So that way mm-hmm. you can further grow it. What What is your typical process when you go into an event right now? So I always focus on gathering people's information that want to stay in touch for the sake of further providing value. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I do that to make it integrated into my presentation is I use a website called polleverywhere.com, which is software that lets you um, essentially poll, as in P-O-L-L, mm-hmm. um, your audience to engage them in conversation. So depending on who the audience is, I'll ask them a prompt, like, have you ever, blah, 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 blah. And they'll say, you know, they'll text a number and answer the question. And in doing so, I gather the information and I'll tell them in person, hey, you know, um, if you do text this number and provide an answer, you'll be subscribed into my weekly newsletter, which dot, dot, dot. And Mm -hmm. I have about three lists, depending on my audience, because I do collegiate and corporate and then Mm -hmm. kind of associations and nonprofits in between. And so I will add them to the associate, the appropriate list and then tell them, um, if you don't want to be added to this list, just uncheck that box. Mm. And, and so that's how I stay in touch. I integrate it very seamlessly. It engages them instead of being, you know, here's a sign-up list. Like the idea of just having a sign-up list is really not good. I would uh, really encourage people to integrate it into their presentation somehow. Or um, one of the things I used to do um, before I did that, which is also effective, is I would ask the organizers of the event, can you send an email on my behalf to the attendees? I'll write the email, but you just send it. And, and in that copy of the email, I will put an invitation to join uh, the appropriate uh, conversation, whether That's it's smart. a newsletter or and then it's, you know, allowing them to opt in because even if you have a hundred people in the room, that doesn't mean it's relevant for everyone. And then that lets them really uh, want to sign up for it. Mm-hmm. One of the f- last topics that I want to be able to get into um, within today's episode is the importance of creating and maintaining re- relationships. 
based on my experience, those are two very different worlds. It's one thing to create it, but it's a whole different ballgame to maintain a relationship. How do you how do you manage each part within your are life? Are you referring to relationship with organizers of events Correct. or with attendees? I guess both. So um, for me, I have a couple of pretty tactical things that I do. Because I come from Toyota, I have a very linear operational perspective on everything. I believe everything is a process. And um, in my work now, so I, I founded a, a model and consulting called the Human Processes Continuum. And it's all about designing processes for your business that essentially humanize the experience for the audience, whether that's your employee, your customer, or society. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very linear in the way that I think. Um, one of the things that I do to keep in touch with um, well, I should say maintain relationship to answer your question with organizers of events is I have a, a, a pre-event email, a post-event email, and then a post-post-event email. And these are the same standard copy. I tweak here and there depending on the context itself. Um, but in that, there's a few things that I ask for. Um, before the event, I always ask them to connect on LinkedIn and I include anyone who's engaged in the organizing of the event. After the event, I give first by offering those people recommendations on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. but I only do it for the people that I very sincerely worked with that I can authentically give a recommendation, not just for the sake of giving it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if it wasn't a good experience, I don't give a recommendation. I'm not going to just do that for the sake of a referral or whatnot. So I really integrate this sort of idea of give first, ask later, And it's not till the post-post event that I then make the ask for a recommendation as well as um, a uh, uh, repurposing that into a testimonial as well as referrals. Mm -hmm. The recommendation on LinkedIn, repurpose it into a testimonial that I can use through content, whether it's video or on the website, as well as um, referrals. And making that ask for a referral is crucial to my business. It probably lends to, I used to track it and I just stopped tracking it because it was always between 60 to 75% of my business was coming from referrals. That's high. And then wow. I realized I didn't need to track it anymore because it was always the same. <laughs> <laughs> Final thought for today's episode, and this is a question that I ask all of our guests. When the odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Great question. Well, I would say the odds are always against us. (laughs) (laughs) And knowing that, I keep people very close who I know will say yes. They're like, if you've ever seen the Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, Mm -hmm. I just love that movie because it's like, I want those people around me all the time. And then everyone else, I sort of keep at arm length arm's length distance away mm-hmm. um you know respect them listen to them hear them out but know that i'm in control and keep the other people closer um another principle i always refer to is that i really believe that we're always alone like despite community quote unquote and connection and as you know social media promotes we're mo- most connected as ever um in the history of society, I really believe that we're born into this world alone and we die alone. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, humility and 
uh, awakening that comes from that when you realize that every day your decisions are alone. To wake up and do work, mm-hmm. you're alone. You decide that. To get in the shower, you decide that. To eat healthy food, you decide that. And the more you realize that, the more you're okay when odds are against you. Um, and I would also say that if I've learned anything in the last decade of being in this business and being in business in general, you know, I'm not a huge company that has 5,000 employees that sell software, but um, I have been in business for a decade, which is uh, the statistic is that 90% of businesses fail within 10 years, um, 75% fail within five years. So I'd say I have some credentials in that, you know, boat, but mm-hmm. I think what's more important than any success and any big win is the bil- the ability to rebound at a loss. Mm. I've really shifted. Like I used to get so excited when my book was on Upworthy, when I got an interview with Tommy Loren, which was super controversial. Um, the video went viral to 2 million views within a week. And um, when my book got endorsed by the New York Times, all these things were great. But the more I got attached to them, the more I felt worse during times of lull. And now I've learned to really embrace and celebrate bad times Mm -hmm. and kind of like get excited about what's to come after that. Because if anything, whether it's speaking, business, consulting, writing a book, there's always going to be ups and downs. And I've just now measured more of my success of how quickly can I get from a down to an up, mm-hmm. uh, that that is more illustrative of me and my humanness than how quickly can I get, you know, how, how much can I celebrate a win? Mm-hmm. So I just look at that as more success than, than the wins themselves. I think you bring up a very good point and that is, in most cases, a good portion of the people that I've come across, there's it's kind of a two-sided road. Some are afraid of su- success and others are afraid of, I guess you could say, failure in a way, which, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just all part of the journey. But when it comes to the success part, how – so you, you were someone that, I guess, went through two different paths. Now, first you went on one and you didn't really – sounds like you didn't really know what to expect and you – got up or climbed the ladder in the way and then you realize all the things that come with it and the things that you begin to pay attention to like the numbers the sales and all that stuff and how that's impacting you psychologically as well do you have any advice as far as what you've learned through that experience on the during your first run to what it means to be successful in your in your life as far as things that people could look out for or reflect on and maybe not go as fast during their first try? Um, well, with regard to health, um, I always put my work ahead of my health, which was not good. I was, um, I don't want to use the word diagnosed because it's not a disease, but I found out about a year ago that I had Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid issue. And, you know, I blame it to a lot of overwork and overwhelm and burnout. And, um, you know, late nights writing and late nights sending pitches and proposals and early mornings and not enough sleep and not good stress management, um, too much travel, 
I mean, when I was on the road for Toyota for six months, like my hip joints would start to hurt from driving. Mm. So you know, you're just so focused on that. But I would say that's not the problem most people have. Mm -hmm. I'm by far and away an overachiever and I fully admit and acknowledge it for all that it is. But I think most people struggle to just make that first step and mm -hmm. take that first step. And um, for me, I'm really grateful that that's never been a problem for me. And so for the people that it is, I think there's a few things that can really be done is I would say double everything. Like if you're selling yourself, whether you're selling yourself in copywriting or speaking or a book, double all your prices. I undervalued myself for probably eight years, quite literally. And uh, I would just give away things. I'd give away my time. I'd give away, f you know, people, you think you're helping by giving advice, but really all of that is valuable. Mm -hmm. and we live in a world now where, um, where intellectual uh, wisdom is mm -hmm. actually and 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 creatives and consultative approaches are more valuable than anything that can be automated and standardized, and so advice has never been more valuable than now. Um, so I would also say, um, you know, something I also struggle did never struggled with that I know many people struggle with is getting to very powerful people that have a lot of influence. And when I say powerful, I don't mean like your CEOs of the world. Those are certainly some of them, but meaning they have a lot of influence, they have a lot of power. And that typically comes from either being in a position of authority or having money and capital. And I've always made very strong impressions on people. And I've always been very good with relationships and remembering people's names and remembering details that no one else remembers. So I think that's a natural talent of mine, but I don't think that's a talent of everyone. And so I, I think what you'll see moving forward with um, anyone, whether you're looking for a career or working for yourself, mm -hmm. is that human touch. Um, you know, so spend more time to add an element of humanness to what you do rather than making it easier, more productive, more efficient. That is long over. Mm. So that means, you know, finding someone on LinkedIn and actually changing the default message to a message that relates to them. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's, you know, a thank you card is an easy example, but for example, um, I found out a, a friend and colleague of mine, a very successful author, um, I can't say his name, but he was struggling. Uh, he had to have back surgery and I found this out and sent him like a package of, of healthy foods. And I said, you know, here are the top th three things that <laughs> inflammation, you know, and he was just so, you know, taken aback by it. And I do it very authentically. I'm not doing it to get on someone's good side or to close a deal or anything. I, I do it because they're human and, and I care about them. And sure, it takes me 45 minutes here and there. But like, you know, we live in a world where all of these entrepreneurs are talking about, you know, work smarter, not harder. There's, there's some truth to that, but sometimes taking a moment, to just handwrite a card. Sure. It takes 20 minutes of your time, but like, it's not going to kill you. The long term. Yeah. Yeah. And, and instead you, what you see is card companies that are automatically hand quote, handwriting cards. Mm -hmm. People know that crap's fake. And so I think there's, I think you're going to see this like 
upturn, kind of like a, a, a 360 loop where we, we went really um, into like convenience mentality of what, what can get me something fastest, cheapest, most efficiently, most productively. And now it's like, oh, wow, you really notice when someone uses your name you really notice when someone incorrectly spells your name. Mm-hmm. You really notice when someone took the time to write something in the right way or took the time to write you a real email instead of a cut and paste email. Mm-hmm. Humans are not dumb. We're noticing these things. So I think the more you make your business your whole, and if you're not even working for yourself and you're looking for a job, the more you make yourself human and connect to that in someone else, in all these really pragmatic, subtle ways, that's what makes you memorable. And that's what will get you a job, not how qualified you are at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. People remember, you know, it's that great quote that people remember how they felt um, about you. And that's how you do that. And you just do it in your way. Mm-hmm. There's a practice that I started, which, uh, based on what you said, it just reminded me of a, a Four months ago, a little bit over four months ago, I started reading this book called 365 Thank Yous by mm. John Kralik, who's who's out of, I think at the time when he wrote it, he was out of Cleveland, so it's relatively close to Columbus, but I actually had a chance to reconnect with him, just or not reconnect, but connect with him just recently, so I'm really excited about getting a chance to speak with him this Saturday, but Great. he wrote this book called 365 Thank Yous. And it's such a simple concept. It is every single day you write a thank you note to a person that has had an impact in your life. So not necessarily the teachers or the different mentors. I mean, it could be as simple as a grocery store clerk, someone who bagged your groceries for you, someone who opened the door for you as you walked into a place and instead of just letting you pass by, said, how are you? How are things going? Or you seem stressed. What's going on? And so I started doing that and... You know, for me, it's it's one of those life-changing things. And o- only those that do it like yourself will really understand that gratitude does work. And especially with gratitude, I think what's important is that just like most other things, it's a long-term game. Mm. There's no short-term gratification there. Yep. And it shouldn't be. You shouldn't do it as a task. You, you actually yep. want to do it like genuinely express your thoughts and gratitude to that person. So for anyone who's who hasn't had a chance to check it out, that's a perfect book to start off based off of what Hillary just mentioned. Just every single day, I mean, take 10 to 15 minutes. That's all it takes. That's how I use my Facebook now. Mm-hmm. I use my Facebook to celebrate others. I Whether it's something they're doing in their personal or professional life or nonprofit work, I just reshare what they're doing that's really positive in the world. Mm -hmm. And it has profoundly impacted my view of social media because I just, every now and again, I'll post about myself, but I'm pretty private. So I don't post a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just found that when I would post about myself, I would seek out validation. And so I just came up with this about a couple months ago and it has already impacted me. So I would really encourage like, just challenge yourself once a week to share some about call attention to something good that another person is doing. Mm -hmm. How do people find you? What are some of the things that you have coming up? What's the best way for people to stay connected with your work? 
Sure. So there's a couple ways. Um, I'm most involved on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a note that says, hey, I took your advice. I'm changing my note. Uh, and tell me how you found me uh, through this podcast. Um, as far as social goes, um, I'm active mostly on Instagram. And that's where I get more private. And then if you're interested in finding out more about what I do for my work, you can check out hillarycorner.com and subscribe there. I share stories of companies that are using um, kind of the element and category or uh, concept of human processes in their business that actually impacts their business growth and sustainability. Um, so I, I share best practices of what companies are doing. It's amazing. Well, I appreciate you being on the show and being such a phenomenal guest, sharing your story with us and your experience. It uh, certainly was a pleasure for me to learn about more about yourself because I got a chance to, to kind of get a preview of this before from our initial meeting. So thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for sharing your message with us. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest stories, featured episodes, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.